Welcome to Future Charlotte, the podcast where we talk about the issues, trends, and people shaping the future of our city. Our guest today is Brandon Jones, the Catawba Riverkeeper. Brandon, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So first off, uh, you've been the Catawba Riverkeeper for about three years, I think. Can you go ahead and just kind of tell me who you are, how you came here, and how you came to this job? Sure. Yeah, um, it was a, kind of a lucky happenstance. Um, yeah, I grew up in the area in Gastonia, did my undergraduate work at UNC Chapel Hill and my, my graduate work as uh, actually at UNC Charlotte. And, you know, I kind of assumed like, like most people uh, with that kind of degree that I go into consulting. Uh, but my uh, girlfriend at the time and my fiance worked in the nonprofit space. Absolutely loved her job. Um, and really encouraged me to kind of look around for some nonprofits. Found the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation. Uh, was started there as the technical program director. I um, absolutely loved it. Um, and then when the, the previous Riverkeeper left, um, I was offered the job. And so here I am and uh, just really excited to, to be the, the Catawba Riverkeeper. So tell me a little bit about what the Catawba Riverkeeper does, because it sounds, I mean, it's a cool job title. <laughs> it sounds a little uh, medieval, maybe. What do you actually do on a, on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so um, one of the more exciting things about my job is that every day is completely different. And you can kind of think of this almost as a type of like nonprofit environmental kind of Lorax consulting, where every day I'm you know trying to improve our quality as best I can. And we have a whole team here. And we have you know six uh, scientists or five scientists on the protect team and a staff of ten. And so you know we do everything from going out and collecting samples, posting those results to lobbying, to you know, digging through the, the hundreds and hundreds of pages of um, documents that are generated by the states every year, uh, looking up uh, different pollution um, reports that come out, uh, following up on those. Um, it's, it's really extremely varied. So what is the state of our waterways in Charlotte? You know, just kind of big picture, zoom out. How are we doing? Yeah, we're, we're doing pretty good. Um, you know, it's, Charlotte's a, a really challenging spot because we've got this legacy, we've got legacy pollution uh, throughout the area, you know, things like, like PCBs and mercury and things that have been outlawed, you know, so, certain types of contaminants that you know, just linger and stay around. We also have uh, what I would call legacy stormwater infrastructure. So we've got a whole lot of, you know, old parking lots and buildings and roofs and roads, um, which were built before they were required to capture that stormwater. So every time we get a rain, yeah, if you've been around the Lowshire Creek and it jumps up nine feet. Um, and so that's from having that older style of infrastructure that just tries to move all the water off the roads as quickly as possible and doesn't try to capture it, treat it, slow it down any. Yeah, I live by uh, McAlpine Creek. And actually, uh, last year we had, you know, big rains jumped right up and they had to, uh, you know, they were plucking someone off the greenway who got washed away. Uh, in that, you know, mini flash flood just here. Yeah, so we've got those legacy issues, but at the same time, uh, you know, Charlotte Stormwater Services and Charlotte Water have, have shown like a, this is a priority for them. And so we're investing millions and millions of dollars every year to try and fix some of that. So if anybody was around here, you know, 15 years ago, Wilshire Creamway didn't, didn't exist. And we've spent a ton of money opening that creek back up, expanding the floodplain out. We've done a lot of buyouts in the floodplain. Um, we're also putting in tons of retention structures all over the city. So uh, things like that really make a big difference, but we are really kind of playing from behind. And at the same time, you know, this rapid population growth, we're still building more stuff. 
Um, and, and so it's, it's certainly a challenge. Yeah, on this podcast, we talk to uh, people kind of shaping all aspects of our future. And uh, we've talked about, you know, trees and the uh, the future of our urban canopy, air quality. And uh, it seems like growth is really a common factor in both the opportunities and the uh, the threats we have to those natural resources. What are the biggest threats to our waterways right now? Is it a lot of growth-related pressure that we're putting on the water we have here? Yeah, it's, it's definitely us. It's people. Um, there's more of us every day, and we bring along with that a lot more, both water use. And so you can think of, you know, every time we put on a power switch, we're using water. Every time you turn your tap, using water. Um, we're also producing, you know, our own types of pollutants. There's obviously trash that people drop out the windows. Uh, but there's other stuff like, like brake dust off your cars, like little bits of oil every time you fill up from the gas station, things like that. So more people is going to be less water in the system, more pollutants. And every person needs, you know, a roof over their heads and roads to drive on. So we end up with more impervious surface. And so as our population grows, um, so do those, those challenges. So, you know, it used to be, you know, you can kind of think of back in like the, the 60s and, and 70s. And you know, we had rivers catching on fire all across America. And we had a lot of these like big industrial dumps of waste. And we've really done a great job cleaning those up through the, the Clean Water Act and through in North Carolina, the Department of Environmental Quality. Um, but it's those what we call non-point sources where it's a little bit from all over the place and it gets mobilized during those heavy rain events. And that's the type of pollution that's continuing to get worse. So in some ways, that actually sounds like a bigger challenge than just the, uh, you know, huge single point polluters or, you know, a river that's so polluted, so obviously polluted that it's catching on fire. You know, is, is that a fair characterization that all these uh, different non-point sources are in some ways a bigger challenge? It's, it's a much harder challenge to solve. Um, it's, it's much more difficult, you know, when there's just one pipe or one factor or something like that, you know, we have the tools, we know how to isolate it. You know, there's technologies available. Um, it's just, it's really just requires money. Um, but when it's coming from, you know, a huge area, uh, it's much more difficult to pinpoint exactly what the problems are, exactly what solutions um, are going to be most effective to solve them. So how do you, um, you know, if you're actually out in the field, how do you go and find some of those non-point source? How do you, you know, nuts and bolts uh, really conduct a, uh, you know, an investigation if you get a report that there's uh, pollution somewhere? Can you kind of just take me through the process? Sure. Yeah. Well, first off, you know, we heavily rely on citizen reports. You know, we've got over 5,000 square miles of um, land that we're trying to cover in the Catawba Water River Basin. We've got over 9,000 uh, linear miles of streams. Uh, and with a staff of, you know, 10, um, that's not a great ratio. So we really, really encourage people to, to speak up. Um, we have an app that people use uh, to give this pollution reports. We do about four trainings a year. We're called Water Watchers, which is a citizen science initiative to get people trained to know what to report, who to report it to, things like that. Um, so once those reports come in, um, you know, we are a nonprofit. So if it's a clear cut case where this is a, you know, somebody regulatory needs to do something, you know, we'll move that up the food chain. So if somebody's cutting a tree in the buffer, you know, if it's in Charlotte, we know we go to Charlotte Stormwater Services for that. If it's in Gaston County, we have to go to DEQ Mooresville. And so we kind of have a, a decision tree there of who can best enforce this. But when you get like a report of, hey, the creek smells funny, you know, that's not something that, that we can just kind of report away. And so that's something where we will go out and investigate. So we'll go out to the site. We usually try and box the pollution. 
And so if you go out to a creek and you find that, you know, let's say it's, you know, got a, a sheen on it, right? So there's some kind of, of oil spill or something like that. Well, then I'll look on the map and I'll go up to the next bridge crossing, maybe a mile upstream. And I'll see, is the sheen still there? Well, if it's not, I know it's between those two points. And you can kind of start to narrow your pollution source and find it like that. Uh, we also use several different types of tools looking at uh, the turbidity, the conductivity, the temperature, the dissolved oxygen. Uh, measuring those physical characteristics of the water can often help us uh, pinpoint what type of pollution it is and, and where it's coming from. And so aside from, you know, the obvious that we need drinking water, and as you pointed out, we need water for pretty much everything we do, to put it bluntly, you know, why should people care about this? Uh, if I've got a creek nearby, I might want it to not smell funny, but what are some what are some other reasons for people to uh, to pay attention to stuff like this and to, you know, uh, care about something they might not see so much in their day-to-day -day life. Sure. Well, like I said, in addition to the, the kind of ecosystem services, right? Like you want like a healthy creek that's going to be filtering out the wire that's going to support a healthy habitat for other types of fish and birds and things like that. Uh, but even on a, a more selfish level, you know, this clean water, it's going to decrease our cost for treatment. So that creek is going to run into a bigger creek, which is going to run into the river, which is where you know your drinking water comes from. If that river is polluted and dirty, they have to spend more time, more chemicals uh, to treat it. And so that the cost of treatment goes up. Um, there's also huge recreation value. And so if you think, if you look at like a heat map of, um, you know, Charlotte, you know, just tax information, you'll see that right along the river, along Mountain Island Lake, along Lake Norman, along Lake Wiley, like those are huge sources of taxable income because people want to live there. Those lakefront houses um, are kind of subsidizing our schools and roads and other things, services across the county, because that is an incredible amenity and people want that. If that lake is polluted, um, if it's no longer safe to swim in it, or if there's no fish there and there's no tourism, um, then that goes away. And so it's really important to have those clean streams, which feed our lakes and our rivers. Yeah, I was out on Lake, Nor um, no, Lake Wiley this uh, past weekend and I mean, yeah, those uh, lakefront properties are pretty nice. I would not mind. Uh, I would not mind owning one of those and, and subsidizing other developments if I could, but not in the cards right now. This is kind of a, a dumb question, but I bet you get it sometimes. Given how fast Charlotte is growing, and the number of people we have moving here, the number of industries we have moving here, our power needs, and the fact that all this requires water, are we? in any danger whatsoever of running out of water. I know, you know, you look out West and there's just headlines constantly about California dams at record lows, all the, uh, the issues that they're having there with agriculture, with, um, you know, fire. Are we ever going to reach that point? Um, right now we look pretty good, but we didn't 15 years ago. Um, so Duke has a, a license to operate all the dams. It's under the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It's called their FERC license. And so it's a 40-year license and it actually expired uh, back in around 2010. And so in preparation for that, there was this huge negotiation. And as part of that negotiation, they looked a lot at, you know, do we have enough water for everybody? So you know, Duke's managing the water. And at that time, there wasn't really any communication. So, you know, Charlotte Water had their intakes in the water and they would pull it out and they didn't pay anybody for, to do that. And they didn't really talk to um, Duke about how much they were pulling or how much they were putting back into the waste treatment plants. And the same thing with Belmont and all these other cities. And so 
what they found out during this relicensing and, and right after that or during it, during the 2007-2008 drought, is they needed to have a basin-wide management plan. And so as they started to develop that, um, under the current rates of use and the projections of population growth and climate change at that time, we were actually going to run out of water around 2050. And so that really woke up everybody. They formed the Catawba Water, water Management Group, which is a, a coalition of all the intake users and, and Duke, um, and started making a plan. And so through that plan and through a little bit of engineering and a lot of uh, better uses and, and management of the water system, um, now they've, they've cleared it out through at least 2100. And so we're in, in, in decent shape now, um, but that was only because of, of really that relicensing and the drought that we had in 2007, 2008. So 2100, that's pretty good. It's good for the rest of my life, hopefully for my kids' lives. Guess we'll see after that. But I think that really um, points to the fact that these are long-term questions, long-term issues, and they can be kind of hard to uh, wrap your head around. I also think that you know, Charlotte has a funny relationship with water. We're not on an ocean. We're kind of on a river, but downtown's not. Do you find that people have, unless they are really intentionally interacting with water around here, kind of an out of sight, out of mind relationship with it? Because uh, I'll admit, you know, when I moved here in 2009, I'm not sure I really even, I know for sure I really didn't know that there was like a sizable series of lakes and water here. I kind of, I thought this was a super inland place. Yeah, that's a, a major problem that, that we face. Yeah, you know, just that educational aspect. You know, Charlotte itself is built on a ridgeline. Uh, and so, you know, about two thirds of the city will flow to the, uh, to the west into the Catawba Basin. About a third actually flows east into the, to the Yadkin PD Basin. And so the city itself, as you said, you know, there's no major waters up there. There's a lot of small creeks. And for the most part, those creeks, at least originally, were covered over. And so they were all kind of piped and drained out. Again, that was kind of the, the engineering perspective, is get this water away from all the people as quickly as possible. Um, now we've seen kind of a shift in that dynamic where we try and slow the water down a little bit, let it filter out, things like that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, a, that's a huge challenge. I mean, most people, I mean, myself included, you know, I grew up around here in Gastonia. I had no idea where my drinking water came from. I didn't know that, you know, there was this, again, this long series of reservoirs. Um, at that time, I, I didn't know that, you know, there were no uh, natural lakes in the Piedmont. So every lake that you've ever seen in this area, they're all man-made. Um, yeah, I heard that a few years ago, and uh, I just assumed that was, that had to be fake because I've been to so yeah. many of them. But um, yeah, I'm glad that that's true, <laughs> that I know yes, that. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, there's, there's, there's beaver dams, um, and then there's some, some Carolina bays on the coast. But yeah, anywhere in this area, any lake that you've ever seen, they're, they're all man-made. Um, and so just getting people to understand that you know, this is an engineered system that we created to, so that we can have power and recreation, and drinking water, and that is actively managed. Um, and that you can have a voice in that management as far as, you know, if we need more recreational flow releases or if we need more ecosystem services or if we need the water to be at this level for the trout hatchery or, or whatever it is, um, that's really important. And then on the other side, you know, when you flush the toilet or, you, you know, put stuff, stuff down the drain, it goes back to that same water. And the water that Charlotte's pulling out has already been pulled out probably three or four times upstream. Um, and it's going to be pulled out five or six more times downstream. And so getting people to understand that we're all part of the system uh, and that we're all relying on, on upstream and downstream users. 
Yeah, I think um, I've had the chance to tour uh, Charlotte Waters facilities and and see some of their big um, you know, purification treatment plants. And I mean, that's a whole other part of this infrastructure that's just pretty amazing. Um, and I have to say, did not smell as bad as I feared it would. So that was pretty nice. That circular aspect of all this is something that's really interesting to me. And, and this is a little philosophical, but you know, water moves in all these cycles between precipitation and evaporation between us pulling it out of the uh, reservoirs, using it, putting it back in. We kind of have this impression that it's just an endless thing that's always there, always moving in cycles, always available for us to use. And I think it's, uh, it's really interesting that your work highlights that, you know, this isn't just some endless thing. As you said, this is a, a large engineered system. And I bet if you ask people what some of the biggest infrastructure is in the Piedmont, I bet very few would name the water infrastructure. But that's yeah, probably the, the, you know, if you added it all up, that's probably the largest infrastructure and maybe even the most important for how we live our lives here. Yeah, I mean, outside the roads, I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of pipes. And in our area, we have um, what's called a, an MS4. So it's a municipal separate sanitary sewer system. Um, and so there's actually two separate systems of pipes under the roads at all times. There's one system that has you know, your drinking water coming in and your wastewater going out. And then there's a whole separate system, which is stormwater. And so that's all the, all the curb and gutter stuff. And so the, uh, the water system that you mentioned that, that Charlotte Water operates, you know, they're pulling water from Mountain Island Lake and from Lake Norman. They're getting it ready to be they treat the water so it can be drank. Uh, it goes to our homes, we use it, we flush it, and it goes to a, another plant where it's you know, cleaned up again and then discharged back into the creeks. But this other system is literally just a system of short pipes where water lands on a roof or a road, and then we channel it straight to the creeks without any treatment. And so, again, that, that's where we really see the, the struggle is that, that kind of older system. And you were uh, quoted this weekend in a piece in the Charlotte Observer about the spate of recent sewage spills we've been having and, you know, kind of the, uh, the ties between that and extreme rain events, climate change. And that really caught my eye because, you know, not being on the coast, I think it's easy if you want to here to, you know, ignore aspects of climate change. We don't have sea level rise and you know, major flooding events all very frequently, like in, you know, some places in Florida or Charleston, et cetera. But I thought that was an interesting piece about the way that, you know, even here, 100 plus miles inland, we're affected as well. Can you talk a little about uh, that issue and then more broadly, how we can expect climate change to impact us over the coming years and decades? Yeah, well, as you alluded to, we're, we're pretty fortunate here in the Southeast. You know, a lot of the, the really bad, significant and, and quicker impacts are not going to impact us. Um, but we're certainly not going to get out scot-free. So, you know, although we're projected to get about the same amount of water, and this is from the, the latest IPCC and, and NOAA reports, um, we're expecting it in, in slightly fewer and more powerful rain events. And so that has issues with our, again, our, our, our systems of moving water around. We get more rain in a short amount of time. It, it puts more stress on the system. Uh, it can lead to, to more flash flooding, things like that. 
Um, you know, we're still expecting to get droughts and we're still going to have flooding. And although it doesn't happen very often, you know, we do still get hurricanes in this area. And although it's a slight increase, I mean, it's still an increase. And if anybody was, you know, around here, you go hit and it, you know, destroyed uh, the Charlotte, you know, Gaston County area. And so those are, are slightly more likely now. And the other thing that, that people don't always think about is that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people moving. There's a lot of people out on the West Coast that are that are tired of, you know, having to move or the house getting burned or smog and smoke, things like that. There's people in Florida that are tired of the red tides uh, and not being able to use the breach access and they want to move. And they also see that, oh, hey, North Carolina, South Carolina, they haven't been hit too hard and prices is low. Maybe I can move there. And we see that. We see people moving into this area at extremely rapid rates. And, you know, I'm not saying they're all climate refugees or whatever, but it's certainly going to increase um, the popularity of this of this location. So, you know, all this stuff can feel really big, really um, impersonal in some ways. What are some steps or things people can do uh, personally where they live that can help out with some of these issues we're talking about uh, with protecting our waterways and, and uh, improving water quality. Sure. I mean, there's, there's the, the basic kind of easy stuff that you always hear about, you know, use less water, um, use less electricity, things like that. It's kind of helping us have more water in the system. Um, something in the Charlotte region, uh, it's really big is please, if you have a dog and it seems like everybody does pick up after your dog. And then we take water samples in urban areas near like Fraser Park, things like that. We always find high levels of fecal bacteria in the water. So it's incredibly important. Please pick up after a dog, uh, teach your kids to do that, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, more on the macro level, it's so important to vote. It really is. And, you know, it's been interesting the last, I guess, like six years or so, we've seen so much focus on the national scale about, you know, what Trump's doing or what Biden's going to do and this and that. But what really makes a difference on our local waterways is those local elections. And so it's really important to, to make sure that the candidates that you're voting for at the state level and particularly the county level, um, they know, you know where their drinking water comes from and they are willing to put some of those protections in place. You know, our county zoning is probably one of the most important things to protect the local water quality. And so being aware of that and voting and asking those questions of the candidates, I think is something simple that each of us can do that will make a huge impact. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's not an issue you hear come up a lot in local elections. And I think that kind of speaks to the uh, that out of sight, out of mind nature that we were talking about, uh, but definitely something people can pay more attention to. Another question I had is for people who are not familiar with our areas, waterways, aren't used to getting out there, um, maybe they moved here kind of recently and they don't know where to go, how to access it. What are, what are some easy ways, you know, you can suggest for, uh, for them to get out and, and see a little bit of, uh, of the water we have access to here recreationally? Yeah. So if you want to stay in the city, um, there's a, you know, Charlotte spent a ton of money recently investing in greenways and they're continuing to do so. And so all of our greenways are actually flood mitigation areas that we also use for recreation. And so these are areas adjacent to the streams that, and when we get heavy rain, they're going to flood, so we can't build there. And so the city has put tons of these pathways in. And so you can see the creeks. Um, you can see all the flora and fauna in that area. Um, it's very accessible. I mean, almost everybody's going to be within five to ten miles of them. It's free. Uh, and you can get out there to walk or ride your bike, um, things like that. Yeah, Did I you... saw a lot more people this past year during yeah. COVID 
out there. Uh, McAlpine Creek Greenway was a, was a highway. Yeah. Um, and then if you want to actually get on the water, you know, unfortunately in our area, it's still pretty difficult to access the main channel of the Catawba if you don't have a boat. If you've got a boat, it's pretty easy. There's tons of launch points. Um, but we're still struggling here with, with more recreational access for those people that, that don't have their own boat. You know, kayak prices have plummeted. Um, you can buy a kayak now for like 150 bucks. It's not a great one, but you can actually get a boat that will float you on the water. And, and there are many more, many more launch points. Um, there are, I think, three now uh, recreational access areas where you can go out and swim. Uh, so there's Ebenezer Park down um, uh, near the Rock Hill area. There's Ramsey Creek Park up near, um, uh, it's over in, kind of near Huntersville, Cornelius area. And then there's a Windjammer Park. I think that one is more for the local residents, but um, you can also um, access the water uh, near the Mountain Island Dam and a few places like that. But that's something that we're still working on lobbying for is, is more of those access areas for people that, that don't have their own boat. Yeah, I was actually surprised when I moved here um, and did start looking at ways to get out there. It seems like it's... Uh, it's pretty challenging if your plan is anything besides, you know, pull up with a, with a motorboat and get in and get in that way. That, I guess, is a legacy of, of Duke's ownership and not having much public ownership when the lakes were created. Yeah, that was just that was the demand. I mean, at, at the time uh, when when they were putting together um, these access plans, that's what people wanted. It was primarily for fishermen and you know, for bass fishermen, things like that. So they put in lots of these ramps. You can launch your own boat. Um, you know, in the most recent relicensing, they have put in several more additional access points. Um, there's also a lot more of these kayak access points. And so we see blue waves popping up all over the place. Uh, so we are actually uh, currently operating tours on the South Fork of the Catawba, which is just across the main channel over there in Belmont and Cramerton. And uh, we do supply boats. If people want to paddle with us, they can do that. You can also bring your own boat. Uh, so public access. So it's free if you've got your own kayak. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots more rental companies that are opening up things like that. Um, but as you said, you know, it's still tough. If you want to you know, just go with your family and sit out on the beach and hop in the swim, you know, you are still pretty limited. Well, final question as we come to the end of our time here, if you could change anything about the Charlotte region and our relationship to water, uh, anything that you could change to better protect our water, what would it be and why? Yeah, what I would love to see, and you know, it's a little late now, but is a, a 50-foot buffer on all our perennial streams. And this is something that we see throughout the country as watershed protection. Um, it's a pretty simple thing to put in place, uh, but it's very, very difficult to put into place retroactively. Um, essentially, a, a buffer is just an area that you preserve that you don't develop, that you don't put any houses or homes or roads on uh, within 50 feet of a, a stream that always has water and we call it a perennial stream. And so even in North Carolina, we see this on the Jordan Lake watershed. And you know, for that watershed, the entire thing is protected. Um, it's a really powerful tool. It's extremely cheap. Uh, there's no active management of it. Um, it does a great job of filtering out some of those non-point source pollutants. We do have a 50-foot buffer on the main channel of the Catawba, um, but at this point, most of that's already been developed, and so all those homes and roads and things are already grandfathered in. So while it helps, um, it doesn't have the same impact had we started you know, much earlier and had that in there. Well, Brandon... We'll, uh, we'll see what we can do about that. Maybe as we continue to develop, that's something that we can pay more attention to. 
thank you for taking the time. And uh, where can folks find out um, about the Riverkeeper organization and how to get involved if they're intrigued? Sure. Yeah. So you can go to our website, uh, catawbariverkeeper.org. Um, we also have an app called Catawba Riverkeeper, and those are probably the two best places you can follow us on all the, the usual social medias. And apparently we even have our own TikTok now. So I just learned that. So apparently we wow. have one social media intern. Wow. Well, you're, you're ahead of the Urban <laughs> Institute. I've tried to stay as far away from TikTok as I can, but I guess that's the way the world's going. Well, thanks again and uh, have a great rest of the day. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.